In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the Ice Age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun, day after day, week after week. Few men unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. These words were written by the American journalist Alfred Lansing in his book, Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage. The book recalls the last major expedition of what became known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Anglo-Irish explorer Ernest Shackleton set sail with 56 men aboard two ships to attempt the first land crossing of the Antarctic. According to legend, he advertised for volunteers in a London paper stating, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. If real, the advert was prophetic. The Imperial Transantarctic Expedition of 1914 to 1917 is now more commonly known as the Endurance Expedition. The name comes from both the ship that took Shackleton's party to Antarctica and the conditions that they had to endure once they arrived. Before reaching its destination, Endurance became trapped in ice and drifted northwards. It was held fast in the ice throughout the winter of 1915. Eventually, the ship was crushed into wooden splinters and it sank to the bottom of the sea, stranding the men on makeshift camps on the ice. The men made it to the desolate and hostile Elephant Island in the few remaining lifeboats available to them. Shackleton took one of the small boats and departed on a 1,300-kilometre, 16-day voyage to the island of South Georgia to find help, which he did. Ultimately, the crew of Endurance returned home, unsuccessful, but without loss of life. And the heroic age of Antarctic exploration had witnessed its last great journey. The people involved were romantic figures, exploring new frontiers in impossible conditions. But the life was a perilous one. Shackleton perished on his next expedition, the Quest Expedition of 1921-22, and so ended the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. It was seven years until the next expedition was attempted, albeit in very different circumstances, as the mechanical age of Antarctic exploration had begun. This period saw the use of aircraft, mechanised transportation and more efficient supplies as people began to visit the southern continent much more frequently. But our relationship with Antarctica has only just begun. Expedition built on expedition, we explored further and learned more. Our focus shifted from exploration to science, and now more than a century later, our work in Antarctica is more important than ever. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Valentine. In this episode, we are returning to Antarctica, where scientists are now engaged in cutting-edge research. Supported by the British Antarctic Survey, or BAS, they're working in fields such as climate change, atmospheric physics, chemical processes, geoscience, marine ecosystems, oceanography, even artificial intelligence. 
the unique location and the fact that it is still unspoilt by too many people makes the polar science program invaluable to solving some of the most significant problems facing us today. The British Antarctic Survey operates a number of research facilities and with the exception of the home base in Cambridge, all are remote and inhospitable. So one of the primary functions of BAS is as an extensive logistics and supply machine. It operates cargo ships and planes and all manner of support vessels and other infrastructure. And one of its main bases and logistics hubs in Antarctica is Rothera Research Station. Rothera is a centre for biological research and a hub for supporting deep field and air operations. It's built on a rocky point at the southern tip of Adelaide Island to the west of the Antarctic Peninsula. That's about 1,850 kilometres south of the Falkland Islands. The island is 140 kilometres long, mountainous and heavily glaciated. In the summer, it can reach a balmy 5 degrees C, but its coastal location means it's spared the worst of the Antarctic temperatures, dropping to a moderate minus 20 in the winter. The 100-strong summer team and the 22 personnel who make up the winter skeleton crew share the landscape, depending on the season, with penguins, gulls, elephant seals, orcas and even humpback whales. Most people arrive at Rothera by air, landing at the airstrip in the rugged Dash 7 aircraft. But the majority of supplies have been delivered by special bass logistics vessels to Bisco Wharf, which was built in 1992. But as the wharf approached 30 years of use, iceberg strikes and inclement weather had begun to take their toll, and the wharf was showing signs of wear. That and a very special ship would need new facilities if it were to dock at Rothera. A far larger ship than Bass had previously had access to, which needed deeper water and a longer wharf to unload its cargo. The RRS Sir David Attenborough. So it's all about how, how do we get people there safely, uh, look after them while they're there, and then uh, help them carry out the essential science that, that we need, which helps us understand our planet a lot better. This is David Seaton. He's head of construction at Bass. He's a civil engineer and is responsible for developing infrastructure programmes for the organisation, which he joined around six years ago. So in 2014, the government announced that they were going to be funding a new polar research vessel, which is now called the RRS Sir David Attenborough. And at the time, it was um, appreciated that there was a need to develop the infrastructure at Bass to be capable of taking this new ship. The Sir David Attenborough is one of the most advanced polar research vessels in the world, and its £200 million price tag represents the UK government's largest investment in polar science since the 1980s. It will support science in extreme environments, as well as provide direct logistical support to Bass bases. It has an impressive specification at some two to three times the size of existing ships. Are you ready? It's 129 metres long, 24 metres wide, giving it a mass of 15,000 tonnes. It can operate at sea for 60 days or to a range of 19,000 nautical miles at a 24 kilometre per hour cruising speed, which is enough for a return trip from Rothera all the way to the UK, 
it can break ice up to 1 meter thick at a speed of 5.6 kilometers per hour. It has bow and stern thrusters for dynamic positioning in challenging conditions, has a crew of 30, accommodation for 60 scientists, and it's equipped with aerial and subsea robotic drones. Whew. It has a special place in the British imagination. A poll to name the ship went viral, with the great British public voting to call it Boaty McBoatface. While it was still decided that this was inappropriate for such an important and serious piece of kit, the event still fired public interest in polar research. And in the end, they did name one of the robotic submarines Boaty McBoatface, for which we are all thankful. Back to Rotherer? Back to Rotherer. And David explains the project. What the the new wharf has replaced is um, a, a smaller wharf, wharf called the Visco Wharf. And this was put in by uh, a Canadian company, Pelly Construction, who Bass uh, contracted about 30 years ago when they built the runway. The runway was about 900 metres long and the Bisco Wharf was about 60 metres, which David says was about the limit of the abilities of the Rothera site at the time. Because at Rothera, the seabed slopes off very steeply. The rock is quite difficult, it's very hard, but it's, it's highly fractured. So it's quite, it's quite difficult to actually build a wharf or sort of on the edge of this cliff underwater. The new wharf is 40 metres longer, reaching a total of 74 metres out to sea. And although it doesn't sound like much, the sea becomes deep enough for the Sir David Attenborough to dock. And so it's a significantly bigger structure, about 40 metres in total height at the very end. So what enabled the modern team, which comprised Bamnuttall, Ramble and Sweco, to build this structure? One of the things that we, we had was we had bigger cranes than excavators. So we had 29 metre long boom excavators, which were bigger than they had in those days. We had a couple of 300 tonne crawler cranes as well. So we had some really quite big plant, which allowed us to get that extra reach plant that, due to the expense of transportation, has to stay in Rotherer for the duration of the project, which lasts several seasons, and so the plant has to be carefully winterized, which involves packing it and oiling it, basically putting it to bed to make sure it survives the harsher months, during which there are no construction works. But the, the technique we use, or the, or the design and concept, was not too dissimilar to the, the wharf structure that was put in 30 years ago. I mean, the wharf had performed very well, and it tended to be damaged, you know, by iceberg impact. So the so its actual general performance was good, but there was a, you know, there was a fair bit of repairing to be done over the years when icebergs would come in. One of our concerns, of course, was that by going out a bit deeper, we would be a bit more susceptible to iceberg collisions. So we had to look very carefully at uh, at the design how we'd absorb impacts. The solution to the iceberg impacts was ingenious, and we're going to hear more about that later. But in general, the wharf was... It's a gravity structure tied back to a retaining wall, and the actual uh, pinning into the existing uh, seabed floor is really just to uh, resist a bit of uplift force. So they're relatively small connections. And that's good, for because at some point in the future, we will have to remove this, and it means that we will be able to remove this pretty much completely, apart from the... Uh, six to nine metres embedments of the, the 50 mil tie rods. So it's a relatively small amount of uh, material that we would leave in the seabed. Everything else we will be able to remove. The, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's 
it's it's steel uh, piles, steel sheet piles, and beams and and tie rods, and and then the rock fill we quarried it locally. So there was no foreign material uh, in terms of the fill brought in. It was all indigenous rock. So that one day the site can be returned to its pristine condition. In this episode, we hear about all sorts of design challenges and solutions. But aside from designing around the harsh site conditions, so much of this project effort has been driven by the need to avoid polluting Antarctica. Any works have to undertake an incredible amount of due diligence around biosecurity and environmental impact. Even something as commonplace as cardboard is a known problem and might carry insects or spores. A ship might even be carrying something even worse, rats. A few years ago, South Georgia spent a large amount of money eradicating a rat infestation. The project also has to be careful about the people it brings. Accommodation is at a premium, and so niche skills can be prohibitive to source. But all of this has been enabled by the skill of the engineers, rigorous planning, and a progressive contract structure that's also relevant to work in less unique environments. Designing in Antarctica is um, surprisingly different to designing structures back at home, and the solutions are often, often counterintuitive. This is Bruce Wolfe, project manager for Rambol, which has a 10-year framework agreement to provide early design work for the British Antarctic Survey's projects. There's not so many Antarctic specialists out there in the world, and there's not always design codes to follow either. But luckily the clients, Bass, have been in Antarctica for over 60 years, so they have a you know, a great deal of know-how on how to transport, build, operate, maintain buildings in, in the pole regions, and also how the weather and the sea ice and the icebergs and all those things behave. So when designing structures in the south, we have to spend a lot of time listening, uh, which is basically what we did for the first two years, listening and learning from Bass. We couldn't go away working in silos and we were sort of in daily contact with the clients. For me, the things that we learn, particularly from the science experts that are uh, present in Baz, and that's one of the great benefits working with Baz is because they've got world leaders in the environment and climate knowledge that we need to take account of. And this is Stuart Craigie, technical director and design lead for Sweco, which worked in partnership with Bamnuttal to build the wharf. He says that Bass expertise informed them on a range of challenges they would face on the ground. For example, the makeup of icebergs. The behaviour and movement of icebergs for the wharf was an extremely significant part of the developing design, but also the conditions that we can expect with the sea ice. And something that surprised us was the sea ice is actually different in Antarctica to that in the Arctic. And the reason for that is the sea ice in Antarctica has a very low salinity in the upper water column. And that makes the sea ice different to the sea ice that you would encounter in the Arctic conditions. The significance of a low salinity content is a higher freezing temperature. But it also means that the performance of that ice is different. So ice has its characteristics change over the number of years that it's been in existence. So first year ice is much softer than mature ice. So if we're just, you know, dealing with something that's going to end up with sea flow ice, then the, the crushing forces are a lot lower than if it's glacial ice that's coming in in large lumps. So a, an iceberg impact transmits a greater 
pressure than flow ice impact, for example. So you can take that into account in elements of your structure, based on the type of ice it's likely to encounter. More generally, Bruce and Stuart have developed a series of philosophies for designing a structure in the polar region. Bruce says that it must be maintainable and robust. Building something that's maintainable and robust, and, and when I say maintainable, easy to maintain, it is, it's really critical in Antarctica. What you've got down there is, is basically a very small village in Rothera. 100 people in the summer, 20 people in the winter. You don't want to be creating a structure that is going to be very time-consuming or expensive to, to maintain or, or indeed require very specialised skill set. The Hall of Rothera is, you know, the, the, the main reason for being there is to, to carry out science and, and be part of this world-changing science. But for those scientists to, to live and carry out their research down there, they need to be supported by a big team of support staff, which, um, you know, anything from chefs, pilots, field guides for when they send the scientists into, into deep into the field, and engineering sort of plumbers, carpenters, etc. So, so whilst we want to introduce cutting edge and innovative technology, we also want to, uh, you know, it, it's no good uh, installing some very complex and renewably powered Keyside crane that maybe saves a, some fuel running costs if it's going to require a specialist technician to to come and maintain it every quarter and, and fly down at a great expense. So it's a it's a real balancing act to to find solutions that are good for the environment, but also robust and and easily maintainable. The design also had to include safe stop points, short term safe stop points that can be reached in the event of an unexpected event such as a storm or an accident, and longer term safe stop points. For example, if you need to shut down the work over winter. Stuart adds three criteria, that it must be practical, predictable and repeatable. So that's the philosophy we have in the design to make it easier for this structure to be con constructed at site. It's something that we don't normally do in the UK. Because it's not seen to have the value that the Rotherer Wharf team has demonstrated that it does. However, Stuart says that the industry is moving in this direction. It means you, you front load the design and the planning to assess in constructability terms how you're going to put something together in Antarctica. The design and construction team sits together and then you take the challenges that you know and you introduce them into an environment that you do not know. What's the challenges we know that we'll need to address? What are the ones that are new and introduced by what we see in Rothera? And then how do we make this design practical in that environment? So we went through, I think it was six options of a marine structure. We went through a, basically a SWOT analysis on each of the structures. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. And then we came up with a selection where we opted for one in particular uh, and then we went into a very very thorough assessment of the elements within that structure that we would need to focus on where we could remove the most risk and then how we could turn it into a task that happens again and again and again so that's the predictable repeatable part of it. The structure itself is modular a series of 20 steel frame boxes 10 along the front of the wharf and 10 along the back. 
To reduce complexity of installation on site, the number of bolted connections were minimized and were prefabricated in yards in the UK before being shipped out. Fewer and larger connections was the rule. At the site itself, three teams worked in a kind of assembly line. A team on the wharf installing the boxes, a team working further up the site constructing the boxes in assembly jigs, and a team further up supplying the assembly jigs with steel. Most of the work that was done in the jigs was the fewer and larger bolts that, that would hold the frame together. All the things that were like connecting a steel member to a steel member, all the rows, most of those were done in the pre-assembly that, that we took down. And then it was, well, some of the frames had hinge points. So they were folded flat and then just opened out into intersections. Uh, and some of them it was cross frames to build rigidity intersections as they went. But the, but the main shape of the frame itself was prefabricated before it went. Uh, and this gave us less environmental risk. So, you know, the more bolts you've got to do in bad weather conditions, the slower your bolting goes, the more time it takes in the programme, the more risk you've got in getting the structure completed in, in time. So that was the, the whole thrust behind it, was to, was to remove those low-value, repetitive, boring tasks that can, that can challenge the patience of people in challenging environmental conditions. Most people's idea of Antarctica is that it's very far away and very remote, and, and that's, that's key to a lot of what we're talking about here as well, in that we've, we've got to get it right first time you know, sort of value over cost in that if you haven't got every single nut and bolt on the ship uh, or if you suddenly realise that something doesn't quite fit when you get down there, it's very costly and very timely to, um, to, to mobilise some more equipment or some more people. Sheet piles protect the front of the frame and it is rock-filled, providing passive resistance to small iceberg strikes. So the strike impact is taken by the rock matrix and you're not relying on the bending moment capacities of the steel. Yeah, and then the similar to the old existing design, there was a, a mid-wall retaining wall and a back-wall retaining wall that the front sheet pile was tied to and then it was some small piles drilled into the, the seabed as well just to, to pin it to the ground and, and stop any uplift. The old wharf had to be able to resist loads from icebergs weighing 7,000 to 8,000 tonnes, which is roughly the weight of the older vessels that docked at Rothera. This is because icebergs displacing more would ground out, hitting the bottom of the seabed and stopping before they impacted the wharf. A lucky quirk of nature and the location. In any case, the structure was able to resist these impacts passively, although requiring maintenance now and then. The new wharf at Rothera reaches 14 metres further out and will allow the 15,000 tonnes Sir David Attenborough to dock. It also puts it in the path of far larger 15,000 tonne icebergs travelling at a knot or 1.8 kilometres per hour. The only distress the existing wharf had shown was significant deformation of the corners, which were due to iceberg collision. So we were pushing the structure out about... Uh, seven, eight metres further into deeper water from where the previous structure had been, therefore putting it into a flow channel of larger icebergs. So the risk of damage was multiplied quite significantly from the, from the mass of structures that could hit the existing wharf. 
and this is something you just will not find in textbooks is is how to absorb the impact of a large iceberg into a structure. There are structures located at remote locations at sea that can deflect icebergs past and have foundation structures that can withstand that. But Rotherer Wharf will be taking the impacts squarely. Nowhere to deflect the iceberg to. 15,000 tonnes hitting something like that is, is quite an impact. So the way that a normal marine structure would absorb, would absorb pressures like that is have a fendering system in the front. And then what you do is you have a element, so a fender deflects. And as it deflects, it creates a reaction force through the absorption material that's in the fendering system. And then that effectively slows and transfers the load. And then it will steadily push back. A bit like the bumper on your car. But we couldn't have anything attached to the wharf because over the winter period with the sea ice, the chances of it getting damaged or swept off by by either the flow ice attaching to it and dragging it or simply an iceberg sweeping along and having the limited resource at Rothera not being able to to come and maintain it over the winter months. It was we just had to have a clean structure in the winter time. So we did something that is exactly I don't know of any other marine structure that's designed like this in terms of a berthing face, but we designed the whole berthing face to deflect, and therefore it would pass the force of the impact past the steel but into the stone mass behind it. So it would make the structure behave like a sandbag rather than like a rigid structure. And an example where this sort of thing happens is on some of the some link spans that are attached to ferries, they, they allow their hinge point to deflect and go upwards and then they develop a mass that pushes it back again but just through the gravity gravity force pushing it up, pushing it back again. It is basically a very large slotted hole with a very large pin inside that hole which slides into it so you get a deflection in the structure itself. And the expectation then is once it does deflect, it'll only deflect a very small amount, it would only be measured in centimetres at most, more likely to be measured in millimetres. But then it, it would just, the design intent is that then over time, if you do get a deflection, the sea coming in and out of a structure creates a hydraulic compaction of the material that's within it. So that hydraulic compaction is, is, is then expected to bring the structure back into its, its position to then absorb the next deflection. These, I mean, the, the iceberg collisions happen occasionally. A big one maybe every few years. The small icebergs hit regularly and the passive resistance will take care of that, but the larger ones activate this system. And therefore the structure can find its balance again just through the one, you know, the, the reaction of the tide creating hydraulic compaction within the structure to bring it back to its static position. I think it was something to do with the uh, cold, wintry, snowy places in the middle of nowhere that, that grabbed the Scottish director's attention. This is Martha McGowan, project manager for contractor Bam Nuttall. I'm glad it did. I had actually worked in, in a couple of different places in BAM at that time. Although I have a Scottish accent, I wasn't necessarily working for the Scottish division. But I sent off my CV when I saw a general kind of thing on our intranet asking for people that were interested 
and uh, I was really grateful that BAM had won the job in the first place and then I was even more grateful when I, I got an opportunity to, uh, to get involved. Martha's role was to deliver the wharf successfully, safely and on time and probably more than anyone else had to get to grips with the unusual environment. So it was down to her to explain the experience of coming to site and adapting to the environment. Well, I've lucky enough, I've been there three times. I've, I've worked for two full construction seasons for six months each time. But the year before that, as you can imagine, even on projects in the UK, you, you like to go and see the site before you go anywhere near starting your project. And uh, we were fortunate enough that the employer recognised that just as much as we did, if, if not even more important for where we were going to be working. And four of us from BAM and the supply chain uh, had a week on station back in the end of 2017. So what do you need to do before getting on site? Lots and lots of things that you that just wouldn't come into your head before you get you get involved in the schemes, obviously. The um, pre-deployment training that you go through with Bass in, in the Cambridge office to tell you all about what you're going to be getting involved with when you go to station. Medicals. Obviously, there's a restricted... Uh, medical service, although it's an excellent service out, out there on station. And then uh, the journey in itself is quite incredible, to be honest. So it's it's generally, there's a couple of different ways of getting there, but or two or three different ways of getting there, but, but generally people go on commercial flights all the way to Punta Arenas in the south of Chile. You can also go via the MOD flights um, from Bryce Norton in the UK to the Falklands, or you could go by ship. Uh, it takes a little bit longer. And then once you're there, there's uh, the Bast aircraft called the Dash 7, which takes you the last final bit. That's a little um, four propeller plane. The pilot told us once that it can run off fewer than four propellers uh, when one of them cut out. So that, that was, <laughs> I'll, rem I'll remember that afternoon for quite a long time. And uh, that journey takes about five hours or so. And I was lucky enough on that first visit that the chief pilot who was um, running things that day said to me, oh, if you're going to be looking after this wharf project, then you can come and sit in the jump seat of the aeroplane while we land. So my first view of Antarctica was actually sitting in between the, the two um, pilots as we landed into Rothera, which was uh, pretty special and something I'll remember for a long time. Martha also mentioned the incredible amount of prep work before ever arriving on station. But even once there, the work couldn't be completed in one construction season. It was roughly six months long each season. First one was the end of, so the Antarctic kind of summer is, I would say, roughly sort of November to April, November to May time. And, and that was when our team was out there. So it was the end of 18, 19 and then November 19, 20. Yeah, the majority of the team needed to be there for the for the full five, six months to deliver the works. The first thing that we did, apart from getting established on station, we had managed to take just a very small amount of plant down there the year before to do like site investigation, trial holes and things on, on the, the existing structure. And before work begins, snow needs to be cleared. A huge amount of snow falls, but in a short space of time, and it settles pretty deeply. But then the big day comes. The big arrival was waiting for the, uh, or the big event to begin with, was waiting for the commercial ship to arrive, which had all our materials and our plant and equipment to, to do the job. Um, because we were going to dismantle the old structure, 
not every single thing was on that ship. We did have provision to bring some smaller items in separately, but I would say kind of 95, 98% of all the materials and plant were on that first commercial ship so that we could offload it onto the structure before we dismantled. And we no longer had a, a main berth for a couple of years. <laughs> so so there was a bit of pressure to make sure that everything was, was there on that ship. Uh, and um, I think there was about 4,500 tonnes of uh, kit on the ship. And uh, that all needed to be offloaded. This is not a commercial port with stevedores, forklifts and staff to unload the ship. The job falls down to the people who are there, like everything else. So we did that 24-7 over a couple of weeks, different shifts until it was finished. We got everything offloaded safely. That felt quite significant for me, all the work that it had taken to get to that stage. It was maybe about a year and a half's work, but then that was just us at the starting line. So yeah, it was a pretty special day when we got it all safely. Although it was a significant worry for Martha, there was nothing significant lacking. The team did not feel deprived of anything, and aside from the cold, work was pretty much the same as a worksite in the UK, where gloves are also required, although in the UK purely for health and safety reasons. Workflow was more predictable, there was less variation in the dailies, and although there were many significant items on the risk register, there was only one that we had to ask about. Icebergs. Everything was pretty okay. There was a few days where um, we thought, oh, that's a bit big and that's uh, that's not heading in the right direction. <laughs> there was a few scratching the heads and we knew it was a risk. Um, a, a pretty high, well, low probability, but high impact if it did happen. Some of these uh, icebergs, you know, people describe them as big as football pitches. And it's hard to imagine until you see some of them offshore. But I remember one evening, one of the things that people used to do for recreation was just go for a walk. There's up and down the runway, it's about 700 metres. You just go for a chat and a walk with your friend. And I got to the end of the runway, which was just beside the, the new structure. And there was a pretty big iceberg kind of floating about, looking as if it was heading for the partially built structure and that was when it was in its most fragile state and then I looked up and our foreman was on the hill and he was looking at it and one of our gangers was across the other side and he had his eye, eye on it and I thought, <laughs> thought there's not much any of us can do about this but um, it, it was a risk. Although thankfully it didn't hit the structure. Bruce sums the job up like this. Well in, in summary we, you know with the wharf it might have sounded quite simple doing a prefabricated steel structure and bolting it together and lowering it into the sea. But when you remember that these things were 14 meters tall in some instances, I think up to 40, 50 ton or so per frame. And we're sort of moving them with a 300 ton crawler cane, uh, lowering them into the sea, which is moving and has icebergs floating past and you know high winds most of the time and a 45 degree sloping bed. And then on top of that, um, you're trying to protect the very sort of sensitive and, and special marine life that's there. Uh, but at the same time, there's also actually some predatory animals. So the orca whales and the, the leopard seals, which which just swim by freely and you, you sort of spot for, uh, from time to time, uh, meant that we had to minimize diving where possible because there, there has been instances obviously of them attacking people. And so it was just, it was a very complicated thing to go through. 
Many of the challenges for this project came from the extremes of the environment, but the challenges forced the teams involved to turn to a progressive approach to achieve success. A collaborative approach, one that industry back home is trying to move towards. It was obvious too, and appreciated by everyone, that Bass's approach complied broadly with the aims of Project 13. And it all started with a requirement for longer term contracts than usual. Here is David from Bass again to explain. Yeah, well, a lot of places, uh, including you know, government funded projects, they are very keen on having this competitive tension and they're always wondering about value for money. And so generally speaking, on, on the government funded projects, uh, you can only place them for about up to four years. Whereas some of Bass's projects take the better half of a decade to complete due to the short working window, the logistical constraints and the need to winterize. So there's, there's an argument just on that basis that you need to have longer uh, contracts. Um, but, but the bigger thing is that because we are delivering projects fully integrated with the Bass normal operations, we, we need to make our partners part of Bass. And that's very difficult if your partners are chopping and changing all the time. It's also difficult if you've got more than one supplier for the key thing. So we argued very hard that the best model for us was to have one technical advisor um, and one construction partner. And, you know, it, we after a bit, that was accepted as uh, because of the, the particular environment we're working in, the logistical challenges, the various risks, that this, this was a, a sensible thing to do to place long-term single source contracts because the cost landscape is different for such a remote site. Because the, by far the biggest cost or extra cost we would have on any project would be if we've got to go back and fix things. If it doesn't work, it costs us a lot of money to go back and fix them. So we, you know, we, we do a lot more planning uh, than projects would normally do back in the UK. And for Rothera Wharf, the BAM team were co-located at the Bass site in Cambridge for more than 12 months, learning what was needed. And I can remember BAM saying to us, well, you know, we would never normally do this, but actually we can't really think of a good reason why we wouldn't do this in all our projects now, because it meant that when we, when we got to station and we got to the point where we were actually building this, everything worked the way we expected it to work. Yes, there were some issues with, um, there were some weather delays, uh, but we had, you know, we had also obviously built some time into the programme for that. There were some of the plant let us down a bit, um, but we were able, you know, we had sufficient contingencies in with, with backups and all the rest of it. So all, all of the things that hit us, we, we were prepared for and the team worked extremely well. They, they were fully prepared for what to expect when they got there. And you know, very pleasing thing was how many of the teams signed up to come back for the second year. Um, pretty much all of them. They had a very tough year in the seven months, uh, very difficult conditions towards the end when the weather gets quite bad. But they all pretty much all signed up to go back for the second year. Second year was even tougher because of COVID and they had to come back on about a seven week voyage by ship rather than flying back. But you know, they, they still came back very much a fully intact team, which was great, absolutely great. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. 
Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Hohen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Will North, Velo Mitrovic, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own magnificent desolation is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reb.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. <laughs>